Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 10, Skinning. If you attended a debate in Petersburg or Springfield, Illinois in 1836, you'd see something indecorous. Gathered in a town square or outside a general store, men running for public office would ground down their opponent's politics and sometimes their characters, usually with their foes in earshot. Then the speaker would finish, an opponent would get up, and the process would repeat, one cutting, one enduring the knife. If a debate ended with a clear victor, you'd describe it as a skinning. Some stuck in people's memories. They'd talk about the skinning of this person or the skinning of that person. It carried the sense of a person's hide getting stripped off, slowly, painfully, and in full view of the public. One day during his 1836 re-election campaign, Abraham Lincoln was finishing a speech in Springfield when a man named George Forquer, a well-to-do attorney, stood in front of the crowd. He said, quote, This young man will have to be taken down, and I'm sorry that the task devolves upon me. Forquer delivered a strong speech that took a condescending tone toward Lincoln, then 27 years old. Lincoln knew his man. Forquer had just left the Whigs to become a Democrat. Now, coincidentally, a well-paid appointment followed his switch. Forquer was also famous for his house, which was a kind of local landmark. It was the first in the city to have a lightning rod, something few people had seen before. When Forquer was finished, Lincoln replied, I am older in years than I am in the tricks and trades of politicians. I desire to live, and I desire place and distinction as a politician but I would rather die now than, like the gentleman, live to see the day that I would have to erect a lightning rod to protect a guilty conscience from an offended God. Decades later, Lincoln's friends remembered it as the skinning of Forkwer. This rough give and take was normal for the era. It made Lincoln, in the words of the day, a slasher, which helped build his political reputation. And it wasn't just public speaking where Lincoln threw punches. He wrote anonymous attacks in the Sangamo Journal, blistering the majority Democrats. One of these may have provoked Forquer. There's a certain energy and exuberance to Lincoln in this period that we don't see again. But there's anger, too. This cutting style exposed something ugly under Lincoln's own hide. At this point in his life, Lincoln's overriding political principle was winning. There's a desperate and amoral meanness in his stumping. And there was no clearer sign of this than the vicious and demeaning race baiting in which Lincoln engaged during this time. It's hard to square this with Lincoln's later, nobler expressions of thought. But if that Lincoln could show what America should be, the young Lincoln showed all too clearly what America is. By 1836, the two-party system in American politics had fully emerged. In May 1835, 
the Democrats held their first national political convention. It was not the first ever political convention, but it was the first held by a major party. Andrew Jackson's party nominated Andrew Jackson's vice president, Martin Van Buren, to succeed him in the 1836 election. Seven months later, Illinois Democrats held their own convention to establish a statewide nominating system. From now on, Jackson men needed their party's blessing to run for office. The Whigs, Lincoln's party, tried to make the convention system an issue, but they also decided to look for votes in the gutter. On the afternoon of January 5, 1836, the Whigs in the Illinois House introduced a series of political resolutions. Some dealt with the convention system. Others declared the Whigs the true heirs of Andrew Jackson. Later in the day, a representative offered an amendment to one resolution. It had four separate points. Two addressed race. One said, quote, Resolved that all white male citizens of the age of 21 years and upwards are entitled to the privilege of voting, whether they hold real estate or not. The next, quote, Resolved that the elective franchise should be kept pure from contamination by the admission of colored voters. The last one passed 35 to 16, with Lincoln joining the eyes. This was in part tactical. The Whigs wanted to highlight Van Buren's support of an 1821 measure allowing black men who met existing property requirements in New York State the right to vote. But Lincoln rarely cast an insincere ballot. In 1836, and for decades after, he was a racist. Many whites like Lincoln, who opposed slavery, also viewed blacks as aliens and opposed African Americans pursuing happiness in the country of their birth. The free black community suffered from an array of vicious stereotypes. Fred Kaplan, in his book Lincoln and the Abolitionists, summarizes these attitudes in Charles Fenton Mercer, a congressman who founded the American Colonization Society. In Mercer's mind, said Kaplan, free blacks were, quote, a dirty, dissolute, impoverished population, a burden to taxpayers, and a source of crime and disease. Their existence undermined the livelihood and dignity of northern working men. Easily radicalized, they were a threat to the security of southern communities. Free blacks inspired black slaves to think that they, too, could become free. Inferior racial aliens, they could never be assimilated. Illinois was a hotbed of what was called Negrophobia. The state's 1818 constitution banned slavery and involuntary servitude. But there were caveats, including a seven-year exemption for slaves working in a salt mine in Shawneetown at the southeastern end of the state. Slaves brought into the area before the Northwest Ordinance remained in chains. In 1824, many slaveholders backed an effort to create a new, pro-slavery constitution. Ninian Edwards, Lincoln's political colleague and future brother-in-law, was a slaveholder. The Illinois legislature banned blacks from voting, from jury duty, and from militia service. Later, the state required free blacks to register in the county of their residence and put up a $1,000 bond, allegedly because blacks would break the law. The Sangamo Journal of June 4, 1836, 
carry two anonymous letters that the historian Michael Burlingame identifies as Lincoln's writing. One takes the voice of a Democratic congressman scheming to block a Whig-proposed land bill. Lincoln had the congressman say, quote, If we pass that bill, the case would be distributed among the people, which I am opposed to. For all history tells us that poor people are the most virtuous, and if we could only carry our plan into effect to allow free Negroes to vote and to exclude poor white people from voting at all, I think our democratic principles would flourish for a long time. Below that was something far worse. Signed, Seize Her, it is a racist, 350-word missive where Lincoln pretended to be a black man, claiming that Van Buren had the support of African Americans. And Lincoln didn't use the phrase African American. Writing in dialect, he employed the most infamous epithet for black people nine times. I'm going to quote one line from this, but I won't use the slur. As way of explanation, the man in Kentucky State referenced here was Richard Johnson, Van Buren's running mate, whose common-law wife, Julia Chin, was a black woman with whom Johnson had two daughters. Lincoln wrote, quote, Now, I suppose you knows as how you sees these men go for Wanjurin, and that their other man what loved the N-word. So, Wanjurin says the N-word, all shall vote, and that other man in Kentucky state is going to make all the N-words women's children white. It goes on and on, barreling into the most repellent language anyone today could think of, stoking fears of black citizenship and interracial love. And it spewed from the pen of an American icon, displaying the very worst of the white imagination. Illinois' black community was small before the Civil War, thanks to the oppressive laws of the white majority. But Lincoln knew at least one black person. William Flerville came to America from Haiti around 1820 to flee a revolution in that country. After his mother died, Flerville was apprenticed as a barber. He traveled to New Orleans, then up the Mississippi to St. Louis and, in 1831, the village of New Salem. An 1881 history of Sangamon County took the story from there. Quote, he overtook a tall man wearing a red flannel shirt and carrying an axe on his shoulder. They fell into a conversation and entered a little grocery store together. The tall man was Abraham Lincoln, who soon learned the stranger was a barber who was out of money. Mr. Lincoln took him to his boarding house and told the people his business and situation. That opened the way for an evening's work among the boarders. Fleurville moved to Springfield shortly afterwards. Whites, including Lincoln, called him Billy the Barber a reductive name that doesn't capture his financial success. At the time of his death in 1868, Fleurville was a landlord, a farmer, and the owner of several businesses. Lincoln was one of Fleurville's customers and represented him in court. Fleurville appears to have looked after Lincoln's house after the Lincolns left for Washington in 1861. Personal relations between the men appear to have been cordial. But private virtue is not public policy. If Lincoln got along with Fleurville, it makes the racism of the Caesar letter worse. Lincoln's failure to see African Americans as Americans would pervade his career in Illinois. 
It would also lead him to support for colonization schemes that were irrational, impractical, and inhumane. Lincoln also lashed out at individual Democrats in 1836. He accused John Calhoun, the county surveyor who helped get him a job, of corruption. Lincoln wrote, quote, He said if he took $200, t'was nobody's business. He needed it. He worked for the party. In a second one, Lincoln suggested that Democrats wanted to go to war to boost Van Buren's prospects. The 27-year-old politician did not sign these attacks. Lincoln officially declared his bid for a second term in the General Assembly in a short letter published in the Sangamo Journal in June. Lincoln wrote, quote, In your paper of last Saturday, I see a communication over the signature of many voters in which the candidates who are announced in the journal are called upon to show their hands. Agreed. Here's mine. Lincoln wrote that he wanted to fund internal improvements through the sale of public lands. He also pledged to support, quote, admitting all whites to the right of suffrage who pay taxes or bear arms. Then Lincoln added a parenthetical, quote, by no means excluding females. William Herndon, a feminist by the standards of the time, wrote in 1887 that Lincoln's, quote, keen sense of justice could not refuse woman the rights which he demanded for himself. Herndon also claimed that Lincoln told him, quote, that question was one of time only. The historian David Herbert Donald, who noted that women were forbidden from paying taxes or serving in the militia in 1836, thought Lincoln's statement in the Sangamo Journal was just a joke. Lincoln did criticize sexual double standards in private settings. Michael Burlingame quotes a poem he once submitted to a group in Springfield, quote, Whatever spiteful fools may say, each jealous, ranting yelper, no woman ever went astray without a man to help her. There's also scattered evidence left decades later that back up Herndon's assertion that Lincoln expected women to win the right to vote. But outside this 1836 campaign statement, Lincoln said nothing public on the issue in his long career. Lincoln finished his statement in the Sangamo Journal with a presidential endorsement. On the surface, Lincoln made a strange choice. He backed Hugh Lawson White, a wealthy, slave-holding Tennessee senator, for the White House. White was a shut-mouthed and uninspiring character who was the opposite of Lincoln and most Whigs on major issues. He shared their suspicion of Andrew Jackson's power, but opposed the Bank of the United States. And White not only opposed internal improvements, but also wanted any suggestion the federal government had that power to be taken away. But Lincoln's backing of White was calculated, part of a Whig strategy to exploit divisions on the other side. Some Illinois Democrats recoiled at Van Buren's nomination. Lincoln's mentor, Bowling Green, signed a letter with other Democrats in July 1835 objecting to Van Buren's selection. On the convention, they wrote, quote, It was called into existence by artful and designing politicians for the purpose of their own aggrandizement, the great mass of people never participating in the choice of its members, superseding the Republican mode of filling office by direct vote of the polls. Bowling Green and his allies wanted the gentlemen from Tennessee, and they dubbed themselves the White Democrats. If the double meaning isn't clear, 
Let's quote the Sangamo Journal when speaking of the candidate, quote, let every white man do his duty. As Lincoln's career showed, the Illinois Whigs succeeded only when Democrats divided, and that's certainly what they needed to happen to have any hope of winning the general election in 1836. This reflected a broader Whig strategy that year. The party was too disorganized at the national level to nominate a single candidate. And anti-Jacksonian leaders, as historian Michael Holt writes, were more focused on building the party through state elections in 1835 and 1836. As a result, three anti-Jacksonian presidential candidates ran, White, William Henry Harrison, and Daniel Webster, with a fourth candidate aligned with South Carolina Senator John Calhoun running his own race in that state. Some Whigs had a hope that one might catch the imagination of voters. But their priorities were local. In Illinois, the legislative candidates rode around their districts on horseback during the June and July campaign. Robert Wilson, who campaigned with Lincoln that year, wrote, quote, The speaking would begin in the forenoon, the candidates speaking alternately, until all who could speak had his turn, generally consuming the whole afternoon. Lincoln, as Wilson recalled, immediately stood out as the Whigs' best speaker. Few of his speeches from that year survive, though we should assume they included race baiting. The Democrats recognized Lincoln as a threat. One effectively threatened to blackmail Lincoln and Ninian Edwards. The blackmailer claimed he had information that would embarrass them. Lincoln penned a letter in reply telling him to put up or shut up. He wrote, quote, that I once had the confidence of the people of Sangamon is sufficiently evident, and, if I have since done anything, either by design or misadventure, which, if known, would subject me to a forfeiture of that confidence, he that knows of anything and conceals it is a traitor to his country's interest. As far as we know, the accusation never publicly surfaced. It was a rough canvas. The Saturday before the election, a Democratic candidate named Dr. Early said something about Ninian Edwards that caused him to, quote, climb on a table so as to be seen by Dr. Early and everyone in the House, and at the top of his voice told Early that the charge was false, as Robert Wilson remembered. Lincoln rose, and as Wilson said, quote, spoke in that tenor intonation of voice that ultimately settled down into that clear, shrill monotone style of speaking that enabled his audience, however large, to hear distinctly the lowest sound of his voice. The following Monday, the voters went to the polls. The Whigs swept Sangamon County. Lincoln finished first in his district. That fall, Lincoln obtained his law license. We don't know exactly when. The court recorded him as a person of good character that spring, the only requirement to practice law. Historian Brian Dirk suggests a local judge might have given Lincoln an oral exam, asking him about his studies and the proper actions to take in different legal situations. However it happened, it was a significant achievement for the young man. But as we noted last time, he had significant gaps in his knowledge, and in the next few years, Lincoln would do a great deal of learning on the job. Lincoln arrived in Vandalia for the legislative session that December, sick and in bad spirits. 
About a week later, he wrote to Mary Owens, a New Salem woman we'll talk more about next week, complaining that the legislature was doing little. He wrote, quote, That, with other things I cannot account for, have conspired and have gotten my spirits so low that I feel that I would rather be any place in the world than here. I really cannot endure the thought of staying here ten weeks. But Lincoln came to Vandalia with one overriding goal, to get the state capital to Springfield. Justified or not, legislators long complained about bad food and inferior lodgings in Vandalia. More serious concerns stem from the village's southern location, particularly with the population of Illinois shifting north. The poor condition of the roads was also an issue, as well as the unhealthy climate. The General Assembly would have to select a new state capital by 1839. Alton, on the western end of the state, had gotten the most votes in an 1834 referendum, but Vandalia and Springfield had finished not too far behind. John Todd Stewart, who once led the anti-Jackson forces in the House, had left the chamber to mount an unsuccessful campaign for Congress. He served as a lobbyist during the session. Lincoln stepped into Stewart's old role as the Whigs' floor leader. As the session got underway in December 1836, Lincoln had a few advantages. The General Assembly, like the one before it, contained a large number of freshman representatives, making Lincoln a seasoned veteran by comparison. Reapportionment in 1835 had expanded Sangamon County's House delegation from four representatives to seven. It was the largest county delegation in the House, and it was all Whig. The Sangamon members, including their two senators, were all notably tall for their time. Democrats dubbed them the Long Nine, a derisive term that referred to a cheap cigar sold by the barrel. But if Lincoln could hold the Long Nine together he would wield a powerful voting block. Among the people ducking the falling plaster in the state capitol that winter were three future governors of Illinois, three future senators, and several soon-to-be congressmen. Among the freshmen was a 23-year-old Democratic attorney from the town of Jacksonville, about 36 miles west of Springfield. He was said to be 5 foot 4 inches tall, though some sources put him at 5 feet tall or shorter. Out of this small frame came a room-filling, baritone voice that beguiled listeners for the next two decades. Usher Linder, another Democratic freshman in the session, later wrote, quote, He looked like a boy, with his smooth face and diminutive proportions, but when he spoke in the House of Representatives, as he often did in 1836 and 1837, he spoke like a man, and loomed up into the proportions of an intellectual giant. This is the winter... Lincoln first set eyes on Stephen Douglas. The Democrats dominated Illinois politics through the late 1850s. Stewart later said, quote, The tendency in Illinois was for every man of ambition to turn Democratic. It says something about the fiercely ambitious Lincoln that he stuck with the Whigs. But he could see the value of flipping. In December, Usher Linder introduced a resolution demanding an investigation into the Illinois State Bank over allegations of corruption. Most of the bank's directors were Whigs, and the resolution fell like a bombshell on the House, as Linder later wrote. Linder introduced the resolution at the direction of Illinois Supreme Court Justice Theophilus Smith, a violent figure who had once drawn a pistol on a political opponent, then got his jaw broken. 
Smith told Linder that he could put him on the, quote, high road to greatness and fed Linder information during the debate that followed. The bank fight led to Lincoln's first extended speech in the House, delivered on January 11, 1837. Most historians see it as a poor effort. Lincoln claimed during the speech that no, quote, real people complained of the Illinois State Bank because it had, quote, doubled the prices of the products of their farms and filled their pockets with a sound circulating medium. One of the charges against the bank was that the operators worked in secrecy, and Lincoln basically argued that was their right. He said, quote, I do not know whether this be true or false. Neither do I believe any honest man cares. It's not a landmark for oversight. But much of the speech is an attack on Linder, who Lincoln accused of acting superior to his colleagues. He snarled, quote, I shall endeavor to adopt that kind of court language with which I understand to be due to decided superiority. No wrongdoing was ever uncovered at the Illinois State Bank, but Linder got his reward. In February, the General Assembly named him Attorney General of Illinois. Linder had lived in the state for fewer than two years. It paid to be part of the majority. Lincoln soon turned back to the fight for the Capitol. His leverage was a major internal improvements bill moving through the legislature. Lincoln promised different House members the support of the Sangamon County delegation for various local projects, if the legislator voted to move the Capitol to Springfield. Opponents later claimed the Sangamon delegation bribed legislators, which was false. Joshua Speed, Lincoln's friend, later said Lincoln had been given $200 to help boost the internal improvements bill, but gave back all but 75 cents because he said, quote, I didn't know how to spend it. And Lincoln believed in infrastructure for its own sake. In 1835, he voted to fund the Illinois and Michigan Canal, which later sparked Chicago's explosive growth. He told Speed he wanted to be the, quote, DeWitt Clinton of Illinois, referring to the New York governor who led efforts to build the Erie Canal. But Lincoln needed the capital, and he had to hold his local caucus together. Robert Wilson, one of the Long Nine, later wrote, quote, The delegation acting during the whole session upon all questions as a unit gave them a strength and influence that enabled them to carry through their measures and give efficient aid to their friends. Lincoln made two critical moves on Springfield's behalf. First, he helped move an amendment that required the winning town to post a bond of $50,000 to pay for a new state house. That locked out many smaller competitors. Then Lincoln amended the Capitol Bill to say the legislature could repeal the act at any time. This is, of course, redundant. A legislature can repeal any law it passes. But it swung four critical votes to Lincoln. On February 28th, the General Assembly voted to move the Capitol to Springfield in 1839. This was Lincoln's greatest achievement in the state legislature. He's a major reason Springfield is Illinois' capital and Chicago its largest city. But the promises Lincoln made on internal improvements would come back to haunt him. The bill was enormous and in some cases far-sighted. The most ambitious project authorized loans for a railroad linking Cairo in the south of Illinois to Galena in the north. Another 
bisected the middle part of the state. Remember, at this time, railroads were just a few years old. There were also hundreds of smaller projects. Every county in Illinois got something. The program might have been a real spur to development had the economy remained strong. It didn't. Business soon cratered in the Panic of 1837, brought about by land speculation and the death of the Bank of the United States. As historian Michael Burlingame writes, quote, The interest on the necessary loans exceeded the entire revenue raised by the state in 1836. Illinois suspended interest payments on its debt, and for years thereafter, its credit rating was poor and its treasury strapped. The state would not pay off all its debt from the 1837 Internal Improvement Bill until 1880, long after Lincoln and most of its original framers were dead. One last note from the legislative session. On March 3rd, shortly before adjournment, Lincoln and a representative named Dan Stone introduced a protest of a resolution passed by the General Assembly in January. That resolution said the General Assembly of Illinois, quote, highly disapprove of the formation of abolition societies and of the doctrines promulgated by them, that the right of property in slaves is sacred to the slaveholding states, and that the general government cannot abolish slavery in the District of Columbia against the consent of citizens in said district. Lincoln and Stone's protest is no stirring call for liberty. It said Congress could not interfere with slavery where it existed. It also argued Congress could abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, but said it should not do so without a popular vote. Still, it's the earliest expression of Lincoln's anti-slavery beliefs. The protest said, quote, They believe that the institution of slavery is founded on both injustice and bad policy, but that the promulgation of abolition doctrines tends rather to increase than to abate its evils. What to make of this? Lincoln had waited more than a month to register the protest, probably to avoid imperiling the Springfield Bill and the Internal Improvements legislation. David Herbert Donald called it a, quote, cautious, limited dissent. It certainly does not defend abolitionism, which at this stage in history was both a movement to abolish slavery and advance racial equality. Abolitionism at this time found rocky soil in Illinois, with its paranoid attitude toward African Americans. On the other hand, Michael Burlingame and Ronald White are far more laudatory of the protest, noting that with Stone leaving the legislature, Lincoln was essentially speaking alone. Illinois still had a significant pro-slavery contingent in its borders, especially in the southern part of the state. The Sangamo Journal, perhaps sensing this, made no mention of Lincoln's protest. The resolution fell far short of what was called for in addressing a great moral crime, yet went further than the silence of Lincoln's colleagues. This will be an ongoing dynamic with Lincoln and slavery throughout his career. The pre-Civil War Lincoln was a perpetual disappointment on racial matters. He did not believe in political or social equality, and he showed a ludicrous attachment to colonization schemes that made no ethical or practical sense. These are not points that should be forgotten. But as we'll see, Lincoln's very modest ideas on race, like the thought African Americans have a right to earn their own living, provoked wild and irrational pushback from political opponents and slavery supporters. If Lincoln seems at best weak on race, and was viewed that way by contemporary abolitionists, many other Americans 
saw him as beyond the pale. Taken together, we can get a better sense of where Lincoln was in these matters. His failings, which again should not be ignored, are part of a greater failing by white America on questions of race. At the end of the session, John Todd Stewart invited Lincoln to join him in a legal firm in Springfield. In April, Lincoln may have made a final trip to New Salem to gather his things and say goodbye to his friends. The village did not have much time left. The Sangamon River proved unnavigable, dooming its growth prospects. Donald writes that lots in New Salem that once sold for $100 were now valued at $10. In May, the New Salem post office closed, and Lincoln turned over his receipts to the federal office. After Lincoln left for the 1836-1837 session of the legislature, William Green, his former co-worker, said Lincoln, quote, never permanently domiciled in the area again. By 1840, New Salem's last settlers had left for Petersburg, and the village became a ghost town. When Lincoln arrived in New Salem in July 1831, he was a poor, rootless 22-year-old, known mainly as a man who piloted a boat full of pork. When he left in April 1837, Lincoln was a rising politician who had shifted the capital of his adopted state. Lincoln might have pursued a similar path had Denton Offutt never offered him a job in his New Salem store. But the village gave him a unique set of opportunities that would forever shape his life. He experienced political and financial failure and tackled the difficult arts of surveying and the law. He read religious and philosophical books that challenged contemporary orthodoxies. Most importantly, New Salem gave Lincoln the confidence that a farm boy just out of poverty could command the support of his community. Yet this young man remained unformed. If he was ascending in the political world, he had not transcended the insecurities of his childhood or the prejudices of white society. He cut into opponents in a way that all too often revealed the young legislator to be shallow and opportunistic. Lincoln would, in the coming years, grapple with questions of race and freedom in a more mature manner. But he was far from being a hero. At this point, Lincoln was just another politician. Next time, we'll talk about Lincoln's first year in Springfield. We'll see him court a potential bride and watch him meet a person many consider his best friend, Joshua Speed. <laughs>